Hello and welcome to the Stat Dose podcast. My name is Joe Francis. And I'm Matt Young. And this is Stat Medical Topics. Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of the Stat Dose podcast. Uh, we're here again, it's me and Joe. Hello Joe. Hi there. Um, and we're here today to talk about upper respiratory tract infections, aren't we Joe? Yeah, it's one of actually... Uh, sadly, one of my favourite topics to are, rant about. You're a bit of a nerd about <laughs> about urtes, aren't you? So we're just going to go go over a few things, look at the quick, quick overview of of urtes, the looks and causes, features, investigations, management, all the good stuff. What do you want to start with, Jay? So I guess overview and causes, yeah. really, and 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 sort of defining what what we're talking about in terms of an upper respiratory tract infection, because you hear so many different terms. Um, and so I think over the last few years, we've sort of gone to this URTI, Upper Respiratory Tract Infection umbrella, as a term to sort of encompass any infection um, to any part of the upper respiratory tract. So these include, but I guess are not limited to, your sinusitis, your tonsillitis, pharyngitis, laryngitis, tracheitis although that, that's pretty nasty isn't yeah. tracheitis yeah. is bacterial tracheitis is pretty nasty yeah. uh, your bronchiolitis and then your bronchitis although when you're talking about bronchitis it you know, it's dependent on the level and you're starting to go into the lower respiratory tract mm-hmm. a little bit these terms are, are quite literally just an area of the um of the upper respiratory tract with itis on the end <laughs> isn't it so it's you know, medicine isn't that hard yeah. <laughs> when you break it down into simple terms. Yeah. Uh, but what that means is that there's an inflammation and/or infection. That's yeah. the root of itis, isn't it? And so, you know, when we're talking about pharyngitis, it's an inflammation and/or infection of the pharynx. But the reason that upper respiratory tract infection is used as this umbrella is quite often there are concurrent diseases going on. So you'll quite current, com- commonly have, for example, tonsillitis and pharyngitis yeah. at the same time. Or you'll have a little bit of laryngitis with your pharyngitis, and that's when you usually start to see these patients who get a hoarse voice and start to... Um, and that's not a voice like a horse. That's a hoarse <laughs> voice. But, um, um, but the, that sort of um, loss of voice and things like that um, as you're affecting your vocal cords. So, so we'll use um, upper respiratory tract infection as, as our kind of overview, and this is how we'll be kind of explaining all of those um, terms. In nice guidance, what you'll see is it's termed, quite a lot of these are termed acute sore throat. Yeah, so sort yeah. of anything in the, in the kind of oropharynx would be acute sore throat, but I guess they differentiate then between things like sinusitis, bronchiolitis and bronchitis. In terms of what how, the, how this is caused... Usually, upper respiratory tract infection is a viral infection, and usually, therefore, it's uh, got the classic kind of prodromal symptoms, wet sort of symptoms, chorizal symptoms alongside it. Yeah, I kind of think of them as kind of wet, chorizal, sort of streaming eyes, running nose, no, just just generally people who are wet. That's folklore, that's my nan being like, if you go outside, you'll get a cold, and I'm like, firstly, nan, it's an upper respiratory tract infection, and secondly, have you, there is no data to suggest that me being my temperature being lower is going to give me this i can see you quoting that <laughs> yeah that yeah um but yeah going back to it um so this is a viral infection okay and clearly virus viruses are really highly infectious they spread through um through kind of droplet contact or, or direct contact um some of the main players um rhinovirus usually yeah. one of the most responsible um, in, in, in over half the cases, actually, 
Um, but there are other common causes, so things like, and I, and I think these are actually listed when you go into NICEKS, they're listed, um, and so coronavirus, you've got influenza, your parainfluenza, um, RSV, enterovirus, and, and adenovirus. But really, who cares? You know, who cares? You don't, you don't tend to, um, don't tend to assay them, you don't tend to no. swap them no. or anything. You know, some children you do, but generally don't ever work out what the yeah. causative organism is. I'm sure there are plenty of really intelligent people yeah. out there that could tell us a differentiation of symptoms between oh, yeah, specific yeah. viruses, but the reality is is that... That's not us. <laughs> That's <laughs> not if you're tuning us. into this podcast <laughs> for that information, you'll be very disappointed. if you're tuning into the podcast for just general information, you might also be disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the reason that uh, myself and, and a lot of other clinicians um, and and people trying to promote that kind of antibiotic stewardship public health um, message is that this is viral. Yeah. However, two-thirds of these patients in, in, in a lot of data that you look at get prescribed antibiotics with tonsillitis. Yeah. And um, it's something that we really, really need to, um, to, to be cognizant of. The big um, important issue that we want to be aware of and the reason why a lot of these patients get antibiotics is because of the fear of um, group A beta hemolytic strep, so um, or, or gas, GAS. Yeah. In your acute sore throat situation, this is probably going to be about roughly 10% of your patients, so it's not a massive um, percentage. And of course, when we think, I think the important thing to think about as well is even if these patients have um, group A strep, quite a lot of them will get better without yeah. antibiotics. Yeah. And so I think that's the, that's the issue, isn't it, yeah. um, along that? So um, what, what's the problem with group A strep? Well, there, there are issues that you can kind of go on to get rheumatic fever, otitis medias, peritonsillar abscess, or otherwise known as Quincy, post-strep glomerulonephritis. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, rheumatic fever is one of those things that, that actually I think a lot of experts tend to argue as to whether actually we should be covering for this anymore yeah. because it seems to have been all but eliminated. Yeah. It occurs in about one in uh, 10,000 cases of yeah. um, group A strep. So it's not a lot. And I think actually when you look at the number of patients that you need to treat in order to um, reduce the likelihood of one rheumatic fever, as opposed to the number needed to harm mm. when you're giving out penicillin antibiotics yeah. or or, um, or a macrolide as a second line, the number needed to harm is probably quite a lot higher yeah. in just in cases of allergic reactions, you know, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, etc. Um, and so it's something that we really need to take into, into account. I'm done with my rent. <laughs> so that's me and I've, um, I've, I've done my rant. <laughs> that's me. <laughs> so that's me in a nutshell, really. There's not much else to me apart from upper respiratory tract rants. But, you know, I, I guess I also want to caveat this by saying that um, every single case is totally different. And yeah. what we're not saying on this podcast is do not prescribe antibiotics to the patient. You have to look at the patient in front of you, don't you? If they yeah. look unwell and, and use your clinical acumen. But I think it's just one of those things where you're seeing time and time again over prescriptions of, of antibiotics. Yeah. I mean, if you look at some of the international data and the, the amount of azithromycin, for example, that's given in, in America, it's astounding. Absolutely astounding. So you know when you said ran over. Yeah. No, but I'm caveating. I'm caveating. I'm caveating. Anyway, so Matt. Yes. Features. Um, so 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 how 
how do upper respiratory tracts? <laughs> he, he says, he says, um, <laughs> sarcastically. <laughs> Have you ever seen an upper respiratory tract never. infection, Matt? I've never had one, seen one, never two. <laughs> Can't even spell it. So, how do they present? Um, so, thanks, Joe, for that lovely setup. <laughs> <laughs> We're so professional with our podcast. Mm. So, yeah, in terms of presenting features and things, it obviously depends on the area that, that is infected. Mm. And as Joe mentioned earlier, all the itises that he went through, there's lots of places in the upper respiratory tract that can become infected. And therefore, your symptoms will, will differ, um, bearing on which, which area is infected. But the majority of patients will have some, as you say, the corpuscle-type symptoms. So there'll be some, some nasal discharge, mm. uh, a cough, which, which probably won't be productive if it's an upper respiratory tract infection. So ideally, a non, uh, non-productive cough, mm. often some sneezing, a bit of a sore throat, which may be a very mild sore throat associated with a bit of a pharyngitis developing, although the main infection is elsewhere, or it can be the presenting feature. General sort of fatigue, as we as we think about when you when you've got a cold and things, a bit of a headache, obviously fever, and depending on where where your infection is, you might have some otalgia, you might have some sinus or facial pain, um, and as I say, you might have a bit of a sore throat. Mm. So I guess it's quite interesting there, isn't it? Because there are a few things there that can really really put us out. Yes. So for example. How severe have you seen uh, sinusitis presenting? I know you had a bit of a rant earlier, but sinusitis is one of those things I have a bit of a rant about as well. Really? These patients often have one, two, maybe even three weeks of often amoxicillin or some sort of antibiotics. And actually, they don't have sinusitis. They have some sort of atypical facial pain. For patients to have acute sinusitis, you need several key things. The first one, you have to have nasal discharge. If there is no nasal discharge, it is not a sinusitis. Most of these patients have fever, and certainly in the context of a bacterial infection, they have quite severe pain. And often pain is the main issue which you need to address rather than the infection. So most infections, as we've been alluding to earlier, are, are viral anyway, but the clinical course of the infection will not really be affected by antibiotics, and it might just clear up by itself. And the main issue that you, as a clinician, have to deal with is controlling that patient's pain. So, Matt, you talked about how patients ideally um, kind of presenting with symptoms of upper respiratory tract infection wouldn't have a productive cough. But I guess sometimes, well, fairly often, if there's a sort of concurrent disease, particularly chorizal symptoms, patients may be expectorating a little bit, maybe mm. maybe having a bit of a, a productive cough, and then they, they come to me quite often and they'll be saying, oh, I've been coughing and I, I've got this green sputum or this yellow sputum or this rainbow sputum or, or whatever. <laughs> and, and so I guess what would be interesting for me is what do you think about productive cough and what do you think about the colour of cough? So the colour of cough? The colour of cough. The colour of sputum. It sounds like a, like a novel, doesn't it? Yeah. Joe Francis and the colour of cough. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a common, it's a common presenting issue. Patients, certainly a lot of cued, clued up patients are quite good at sort of combining that they've got green sputum with mm. I need antibiotics. Mm. And I suppose it's, it's, the question really is how do you differentiate from um, a sort of snotty cough? Mm. Were you bringing up? Snotty cough is a good way of saying it. Actually, what you're coughing out is mucus from the oropharynx or the nasopharynx, not actually bringing up sputum from the the chest, not a lower Mm. respiratory tract infection. Yeah, so Um, it's kind of, there's loads of inflammation and then it's going... And, and what I what I think of is probably going back yeah. back against the nasopharynx, it's going down the oropharynx, and then they're coughing it out. So it seems exactly. like it's productive, as yeah. opposed to it's coming from the chest. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think really one of the key tips, I suppose, I, I give the students is to to go and look at different types of sputum mm. and, and be able to differentiate between what is a snotty sputum and what is a true 
COPD, asthma, you know, low respiratory tract type mm. uh, sputum, which is mm. often a lot thicker, often darker as well. Um, it can be green, can be yellow. And I think just because a patient says that they're bringing up yellow or green sputum doesn't mm. mean they need antibiotics. Yeah, and I think I, I totally agree. And when I was um, when I first went into primary care and I've seen this more and more and more, I actually looked at the literature surrounding this and and, and, and colour of, uh, of of sputum and you know did a load of tests on the sputum to see if there was um, any particular pathogen that was associated with yellow, for yeah. example, or green. And it and from what I've read, it doesn't seem as though there's any difference between um, the the sputum colours and what's going to be definitely a bacterial infection or a yeah. viral infection. Yeah. And so what I tend to do is think about um, think about sputum colour in terms of sputum colour, yellow, green, whatever, probably means there's inflammation yeah. or there's an infection. It yeah. doesn't tell me what the causative agent no, is. No. So the cause of the And so actually what I'm more interested in probably is hemoptysis. So yes. is it red? You know, is yeah. it rough kind of rusty red, you know, colour? Or is it that kind of white, frothy um, heart failure type situation, yeah. although hopefully they won't present like classic erty sort of thing. No. But you know, is it, those are more important to me than what the colour of the sputum yeah. is exactly. Ultimately, colour of sputum and that productive cough that the patient will give you in the history is it's just a data point. Like yeah, of course. Yeah, 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 put it into the context of the patient. Mm-hmm. Actually, do they have any chest signs? Do they have crackles? Is there bronchial breathing? Is there an oxygen requirement? Do their observations suggest there's something more sinister going on? Mm. You might even do a chest X-ray if you're if you're in hospital. Mm. It's, it's just another data point. It doesn't equal anything like mm. like all data points. I like that. Um, just for just for real kind of immersive podcasting, <laughs> we've got the air ambulance we do have the landing air. behind taking us. Taking quite a long time. So oh, there we go. There we go. Amadon. Okay, Matt, so we, we've talked about some of the features there. So on assessment, yeah. are there any particular things that we need to be cognizant of because they're particular red flags for uh, turning uh, patients turning up with sore throat? Because there are some um, some problematic diseases, disease processes that we yeah. need to find out. So we need to find out, you know, is this sore throat, for example, a peritonsal abscess, a mm-hmm. retropharyngeal abscess? You know, is there a uveitis? Um, uveitis? No. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about the uvula. It's like like a uveitis or something like that yeah. going on, you know. And of course, probably things like sepsis and probably things like yeah. meningitis. Worst case scenario. So, what are some pearls that you could give us in terms of assessing that? Then, so I think as you say, it's it's not missing that scary diagnosis. So something like so meningitis, something you mentioned, is obviously yeah. something we don't want to miss. Yeah. Actually, that can present with either a prodrome mm. sort of headache, quartier mm. type thing, or can present with sore throat. Certainly in children mm. as well. Mm. It's difficult to differentiate because if, you, if you've got a sore throat and a bit of lymphadenopathy, for example, moving your neck is painful. Yes. So actually some of these children will present with neck stiffness, yes. which obviously is a, is a feature that we associate with meningitis rightly. Yeah. And actually being able to differentiate the two, it, it can, you know, can be difficult, certainly in small children. Yeah, it's just like your classic sort of child who's presenting with probably an upper respiratory tract infection yes. and has abdominal pain yeah, exactly, because yeah. they've got, you know, there's plenty of lymph nodes there exactly, and, you know, yeah. whatever. So, yeah, uh, no, I completely agree. Children and certainly the elderly as well and the immunosuppressed are the three sort of groups you need to just take a little, you know, mm. take a little bit longer, just delve a bit deeper into the history, examine a bit more thoroughly than, than perhaps you would otherwise. Mm. Just make sure you're not missing anything. Um, hydration status is key. So, so the assessing a swallow. Mm. Um, yeah. And, you know, tonsillitis, even in... in you know, young adults or fit and well adults, if there's a lot of tonsillar swelling, mm-hmm. and so if the tonsils are touching, your swallow is going to be impaired. 
and therefore your hydration status might be impaired, which might not be an issue if, if you can keep up your fluids, if you're really good with taking your fluids. But if you're a bit older, perhaps you might struggle struggle keeping your fluids mm. and your, your fluids up. And there, that's something where you might want to consider dexamethasone to reduce that that swelling a little bit around the yeah. tonsils. To and so do you, you do, do that in practice? I know that I yeah. know giving prednisone and things like that is coming out um, in the literature a little bit for... Yeah, for I yeah, I do it in practice, certainly for children. So mm. Children's the most common mm. age group I see, sort of tonsillitis in. Mm. And I, I do it for children. Mm. Um, mm. It's, it's what ENT do mm. in my trust, so I copy ENT. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. Okay, so so let, let's think about some some symptoms where I'd be really worried. Then I guess so. If if we're taking a history from this sort of patient, so I guess one of the one one of the key things, as you said, um, that that I like to ask when somebody comes in with a sore throat is, um, and it's all part of assessing then their eating and drinking, so the hydration status yeah, yeah. is, um, how is it for you to swallow? Mm. Um, and and the patient will often say, you know, it's it's really really painful. It's awful. It's mm. the worst thing ever. And <laughs> yeah, well, it, you know, you, swallowing razor blades. Yeah, that's yeah, that it. Yeah, swallowing razor blades. Yeah, and and I will ask them, but you can swallow, and and that's important because it tells me a few data points. So it tells yeah. me they're probably drinking fluids. But I will follow up by saying, so you are drinking fluids. Yeah. Uh, are they able to eat? So hydration states, particularly with children, really really important. Mm. But but in everyone, really important. Um, and it also starts me thinking about things like. Uh, retropharyngeal abscess yeah. um, and, and peritonsal abscess, um, which are more likely to give you significant airway issues, mm-hmm. um, and also epiglottitis, which we don't want to miss in children. Right. Uh, Quite a rare diagnosis, yeah. but we don't want to miss it. So if they're, if they're, you know, I have seen patients come to me before where I, I have given them antibiotics because mm-hmm. they're sat there with a, a wad of tissue and they're spitting out their own sputum because their tonsils are so huge that they physically can't swallow. That's probably when you're starting to get peritonsal cellulitis yeah, yeah. and it's actually starting to invade the soft tissues into an abscess formation. And so that kind of swallowing question actually gives us quite a lot of data. So I suppose the next bit to talk about will be investigations and management, really. Mm. And I suppose, as we, you know, we've already alluded to, investigations don't tend to do too many because the majority of cases that that we see are self-limiting, so we don't often don't require investigations. There are several scoring systems that exist to help work out whether patients need antibiotics, though. Mm. Joe, what do you use in your practice? My, my understanding is that both of the main tools, so the Centaur criteria and uh, fever pain, they are to differentiate between whether you have a group A strep yes. yeah. infection or not. And you, you, you can have other bacterial infections uh, um, more rarely. And importantly, use these just as a clinical decision-making tool. Mm-hmm. I don't let it, I, I let it inform, but not sort of overtake, not dictate my, my, yeah. not dictate my practice. Yeah. So um, I think, and I, and I think really when you're assessing the sort of upper respiratory tract, you incorporate most of this into your physical examination anyway. Mm. Um, but I tend to use fever pain just because it's advocated by the um, kind of CCG down here. But there are there, there is Centaur. Uh, it's probably, it's been around longer. Uh, it's probably used more frequently um, and fever pain. I'm not exactly sure of whether um, one is better than the other. I know that um, the Centaur scores got relatively good numbers. So sensitivity, 97%. Not so good on the specificity, about 78%, but um, has been quoted to reduce antibiotic prescribing by about 50% when you use it. Mm. And what I do find is that alongside you taking the history from the patient, doing a physical examination, when you're (laughs) describing to a patient that, that you're not going to prescribe the antibiotics, and I laugh a little bit because it's always... This is always the dreaded part of the consultation, yeah. isn't it? 
using a score is actually very beneficial in talking to them about uh, antibiotic prescribing. I I guess it kind of takes it away from the personal preference of the practitioner Mm -hmm. and puts it on something that's non-biased. And so you can go, uh, and this score suggests that you're quite low on the risk factor for having a group A strep uh, infection that needs antibiotics. So I, I find them really helpful there. An example of what this encompasses, fever pain, is fever in the past 24 hours, absence of cough, or coryza, so that's more likely to be your acute bacterial infections. Symptom onset of less than three days. Um, and so, you know, if somebody comes to you with a week's worth of, of, of sore throat, cough, cold type thing, it's much more likely to be flu-like symptoms, viral upper respiratory tract. It might be mono, you know, yeah, stuff yeah. like that, you know, glandular fever. So um, the next is then purulent tonsils and then severe ton- tonsillar inflammation. And each of those um, points have equate to one so if you sort of go alongside it and tick and what, what I tend to do is get it up on MD Calc uh, which is a free sort of app that I have no financial ties to just so we're clear <laughs> but it's just a free app that I get up on my phone and um, you just go through it it takes at least sort of two or three uh, sorry three or four um, to be getting up to the point where you're considering antibiotics so I think our guidelines are from three and above, you can consider either a delayed script or prescribing immediate antibiotics. But of course, that's then dependent on you know the patient's comorbidities, their social situation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but yeah, fever pain is what I use. Um, I know the central criteria takes into consideration things like anterior cervical lymphadenopathy, yeah. which is something that you would always feel for. But again, quite commonly, lymph nodes are present, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's also difficult to differentiate between whether it's a anterior, whether it's a posterior. Um, etc. So something to something to think about. These scores are are, are good in uh, helping guide you and can reduce your prescribing rates, but you have to take it into consideration with the patient. I suppose that, I mean I, I don't I don't use scoring systems when I see these patients. Yeah, because it's just something because you're renegade because I'm renegade. It's just something I've never done, mm. um, and I don't think any of my colleagues do. But I suppose it sort of spoke to me when you actually you were you were saying there that you use it to help in the you don't. You do not require antibiotics yeah. in a chat. Yeah. And I suppose actually that's something that I could, you know, certainly incorporate to my practice. So, so hang on, are you saying that I've educated you? I would. Uh, yeah, well, let's not go too far. <laughs> um, no, no, that's, to be fair, that yes. Yes. I have learned something from Joe Francis and it will probably change my practice. Huh. And this is on a podcast now. <laughs> right. I'm going to print I'm gonna, that out. I'm going to delete this. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to capture this and use it as my alarm in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> like to wake up to the sound of my voice oh no oh no (laughs) let's stop it there um so matt actually something that i was interested in getting your um your uh, opinion on um, because we don't use it is rapid strep antigen testing i don't know if it's do do you use that in the ed no it it exists um it's more (laughs) (laughs) it exists as an entity um it's it's quite american i don't yes i don't i've never used it in my practice Mm. i don't think our lab would do it to be honest, I don't know if they would or not, but it's certainly something that often pops up in the in the literature. Um, you'll probably see it if you're you know reading around um, tonsillitis and, and sore throat and things. There are certainly labs in the UK that do it. Is that another helicopter? Yeah, oh. I think they're taking off now. They're taking off now. They clearly don't know that we're talking about life threatening conditions. Well, yeah, exactly. The air ambulance. They're flying off. You know, <laughs> oh, I've got an arrest, a major trauma. We're here talking about. Whether or not to give antibiotics <laughs> for a sore throat. This um, is going to be the major problem in the future. <laughs> Millions of deaths because of poor antibiotic stewardship. Yeah. We're, more, we're all about prevention here on the uh, Stat Dose <laughs> podcast. <laughs> the prophylactic Stat Dose. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so rapid strep, strep testing. It's not, I mean, experience is pretty poor in the UK in terms of use. From memory, the sensitivity and specificity aren't, aren't great anyway, so it's not the best test. Mm. And actually, it doesn't really change how we operate in the UK. As I say, it's quite a big thing in America, but that's probably related to the financial issues, the financial differences, rather than um, yeah. the best practice. Lit- um, litigious uh, sort of healthcare system as well. I think they've got to be really cognizant of that. Um, and and, um, and so the, the, I think the testing generally is much more out there and the antibiotic yeah. usage is much more, but they have a completely different healthcare system. Yeah. And um, so, so it is very interesting. Again, something I would think of is it's a rapid strep antigen. Yeah. So it's, it's for the most common bacteria. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it's not for all of the bacteria that you may be suffering with. So, you know, there are other strains that you could have that will give you a bacterial upper respiratory tract infection. So, again, it's one of those things where it could almost be quite dangerous Mm -hmm. if you just use that to guide your practice. Um, And it's about taking a holistic look at the patient, isn't it? So the way in which they're they're done, for for those of you who who haven't heard of this, is it's essentially a, a throat swab. Yeah. Isn't it? Um, can come back quite quickly. As I say, it's, it's used pretty much every sore throat in um, uh, in certain parts of America. Um, ha- having listened to competing podcasts, um, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so it must be that you can get it back fairly quickly. Otherwise, you'd have just rooms full of um, of, of patients <laughs> with sore throats waiting for strap antigen tests to come back. Sore throat wards. Yeah. <laughs> just put them together and infect each other. But yeah, I don't think it's um, I don't think it's hugely in common practice in the UK, and I think we tend to use clinical judgment. So, so Matt, um, we we talked all about when not to prescribe antibiotics yes. but let's talk about if you are going to prescribe antibiotics so yeah what what, what do we prescribe what's the first line so the first line is pen v okay i'm not going to say the full name because i can't phenoxymethyl penicillin that's, yep that's what i meant <laughs> i predominantly know that because i'm like just just uh, kind of like just tip of your tongue it was there because, because it's probably because i've been going why have you prescribed so much phenoxymethyl penicillin <laughs> It's like when when, you, when your mum says your full name, it's going yeah. to be like, yeah, it's a naughty person. Yeah. It's a bad thing. If, if Joe comes to you and says, well, if you've got phenoxy-pen-V. <laughs> yeah, so penicillin-V, phenoxymethylpenicillin, or pen-V, as it's um, <laughs> as it's most commonly known, because, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the time you don't really want to say phenoxymethylpenicillin at three in the morning. So <laughs> so um, what are we doing with dosages and stuff, Matt? It's, it's a bit uh, of a pain, isn't it? Yeah, I mean... So adult dosing is normally 500 mm. QDS. Yeah. Um, for course length varies, sort of five yeah. to ten days is what I've got in my head. Um, yeah. So I think um, the ten days is um, as prevention for rheumatic fever, yeah. and particularly so patients like um, scarlet fevers will often as well get it for ten days. I think what we're moving to now is a sort of five days and review model, yeah. but that's only in certain guidelines that are coming out. Um, and so you will see a variation of five to ten days. So second line, pen- line penicillin allergic. Uh, some erythromycin. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Erythromycin. One of the mycins. Yeah. Typically, clarithro is the, yeah. the easiest to get your hands on. Yeah. That can be used. It's slightly less effective than pen V. So okay. often you need to keep a closer eye on these patients, especially if you're worried about, you know, it's that, if it's that rare group that you're worried about, mm. uh, group A strep. But generally, it's quite well tolerated. But I, mean, I think, you know, we've alluded to it throughout the podcast. We're going to do it again. The majority of patients do not require mm. antibiotics. But I guess something that then, um, something, because what I what I don't do, I'm not brutal in my practice, and I don't go, <laughs> you don't need antibiotics, goodbye. <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, in fact, I used to know a practitioner who would talk, talk, 
talk to the man. They're always on time, always on time <laughs> in the, in the surgery. Yeah, and I had no idea how he used to do it. And he actually used to get the patients out and talk about their management plan whilst showing them into the waiting room. And then we'd be like, goodbye on the way out. And then he'd just call the next one. It was amazing, but also probably not very good for the patient. I don't think we wouldn't necessarily advocate that as the best approach to uh, ensuring patients. Uh, it was quite something to see, yeah. Um, so what we want to do is provide these patients with a management plan if we're not yeah, going to prescribe, yeah. don't we? Because patients want to go away with something, don't they? Yes. And, and that's reasonable because they've they've come to you for, for assistance. So I know from my practice that you alluded to um, pre- uh, uh, DEX, Dex and, 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 I, and I think um, I think possibly in the future you might see prednisolone coming out for mm-hmm. for, for severe uh, acute sore throats because it is being used in, in Northern America now, I think, and there are some studies coming out about it. We will see if that comes comes over, but that might be something in the future that comes out, and maybe that will be in the form of DEX, so it's a, yeah. it's a kind of one-off dose um, as opposed to taking PRED. But really, it's about reducing that inflammation, isn't it? Yes. So non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, yeah. probably going to be your go-to. Yeah. Um, I don't know, don't know about you, Matt, but I, I often also um, say, worst-case scenario, that uh, over-the-counter remedies like the kind of lidocaine sprays, lidocaine-based yeah. sprays, the kind of anaesthetic sprays, uh, can, can be quite good to to do that and patients like to be able to go to the pharmacy and kind of have that continuity of care so things like that are quite good just before you eat and things particularly to make sure that you're you're feeding and yeah steam inhalation yeah possibly a bit old-fashioned but they work perfectly fine yeah so NSAIDs um paracetamol and NSAIDs together if you if you want thinking about um the the kind of anesthetic sprays steam inhalation um, and and pushing fluids, pl- plenty of fluids, eating as normally as you can is usually the um, the, the kind of go to treatments, and it's effective in most patients. Yeah. So Matt, we've talked about uh, sort of the investigations and provisional management of these conditions. What are the most important differentials that we need to consider? So. Obviously, differentials not being, I guess, tonsillitis, sinusitis. So we've got all those things under the umbrella. What are the really important things we don't want to miss? In the specific conditions. So, I mean, just thinking, if we go to a paediatric point of view, so scarlet fever mm. is quite a big, um, quite a common thing that, patients, that parents are a little bit worried about. Yeah, so how, how would you differentiate that then? Because it's quite, that's actually quite difficult. It is it? really difficult, yeah. So the presenting features really are fever, basically, present you present with a cold. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> fever. Corsia, you often get a bit of a rash, which, mm. is, which is blanching, a mm. reassuring blanching rash. Mm. Um, really, it's the, the strawberry tongue, mm. the key differentiating features. Yeah. Have a little look on uh, the internet or in textbooks about, for, for examples of strawberry tongue, they're quite, they're quite striking. And if, mm. if you see them in practice, you sort of go, hmm, looks like a strawberry. But that's basically what it looks like. The tongue's very, very red, um, some, some pustules and, and things there, mm. making it look essentially like a strawberry. Mm. Um, and then I guess it's um, the big thing is the rash, isn't it? Yeah, so the rash um, often starts non-blanching and then you get uh, what's typically described as a sandpaper-type rash, mm. so quite a rough... Raised, I raised, guess, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and systemic. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, and I guess you can, you know, this, it doesn't look exactly like that kind of classic measles, sort of no. um, that kind of maculary, papular type thing that yeah. starts beyond the ears. It's a real pinprick... Yeah, um, erythema- it erythematous. Looks, it looks sort aggressive. Of, yeah, and it's um, and it really is like you feel it, and you'll you'll if you feel it once, you'll remember it. That kind of yeah. texture yeah. That, you, that goes across because it's little pimples that are raised along it, yeah. isn't it? 
Key features for management for Scarlet Fever. Uh, this is a group you want to give antibiotics mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other key aspect of management is it's a notifiable disease. Yes. So you need to inform Public Health England to help with things like contact tracing and to mm-hmm. prevent the spread of the disease. But generally, uh, these these um, presentations, these patients, they do quite well, don't they? Yeah, they do, yeah, they do pretty well with the standard sort of you know stuff we talked about earlier. So your, your home remedies, your mm-hmm. fluid, paracetamol, yeah. brufen, etc. And again, um, Penv is the Penv's, um, yeah, because yeah, it's group A strep, isn't it? Yeah. Usually, so yeah. Penv is your, your your treatment of choice there with chlorpromycin being yeah. being a second line again, but not as effective. Not as effective. Other things to be aware of. So Joe's mentioned a few peritonsular abscesses, sometimes called quincies, which mm. are commonly be referred to. Um, these are exactly what they are. So they're they're small abscesses around the tonsils. These will often be lanced. So mm. it's actually either ENT or somebody from the emergency department. We'll put a, a cannula, normally a, an orange or a grey cannula, um, with a syringe on the end into the into the area and mm. just essentially um, withdraw all the pus. It's quite, mm. quite an effective way to get rid of the infection there. I imagine it's quite them. cool to do. It's well. quite cool to do, yeah. You need to anaesthetise the area. <coughs> excuse me, you have to anaesthetise the area prior to, to doing that. Mm. But as you say, it's quite it's quite a satisfying thing when you get your first uh, when you get your first Quincy done. Mm. You need to be aware that if you are a bit aggressive with your pushing, there are some quite important vascular aspects quite close by the carotid artery being one of them so obviously if you if you go into that you need to be prepared for acute hemostasis so acute um, pressure on that wound mm. but generally once you've once you've had some training and you've seen a few it's quite a straightforward procedure to do mm. i think uh, to, to think about peritonsal abscess and, and these other retropharyngeal abscesses they're an extension of the the disease yeah. aren't they so you don't just get a peritonsal abscess yeah you will have usually a tonsillitis of some form and then that will turn and it's kind of a um a continuum isn't it so you'll get a tonsillitis and you'll get a kind of peritonsillar or tonsillar cellulitis that will then go through the sort of those layers through the fascia and it will actually then start to form a collection yeah and so it's not just like you've got a you know you're not often going to see a patient who comes in they've got a day history of sore throat and they've got a whacking great peritonsillar <laughs> abscess it's going to be a, a continuation of the disease itself and so it's important to look for peritonsillar abscess in your patients who are presenting with tonsillitis and usually mm-hmm. that will be things like um singular singular sided swelling yeah. um tonsils being pushed over or the uvula being deviated is a is a very common one mm-hmm. changes in voice so that kind of hot potato type thing difficulty swallowing etc that start and, and then kind of fever out of proportion pain out of proportion yeah. difficulty with neck movement things like that or feeling like they've got a lump in their neck although mm-hmm. that is a difficult symptom because often they will Patients will say that if they got a sore throat anyway. Yeah. Um, so, but just thing, things like that to, to, to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly the ones that I generally see, it's, it's when you do a, a an oropharyngeal exp- inspection yeah. and you're like, wow, there, there's, there's, um, you know, all the soft tissues are being pushed that way. Yeah. That's not good. The one we all dread, I suppose, the the dreaded epiglottitis. epiglottitis yeah, so much less yeah. common yeah. Um, due to the, the rise of the um, Haemophilus influenza, the, the HIP vaccine. Yeah. We do still see it now because, of, as often as in the in the media, the um, suspicion around vaccine and vaccine mm. safety is is unfortunately getting a bit of a bit too much airtime, and, and there's a lot more concern in the in the general public about the safety of vaccines. Uh, although they are safe and effective, as we as we all know as medical people, but epiglottitis again, you're going to get this fever, this sore throat. The key differentiating fe- feature, certainly in children, is drooling, excess mm. drooling, mm. and the concerns here are all airway related. Yeah. So you've got that acute inflammation of the epiglottis. Mm. Um, you can get stridor, mm. or you will get stridor. 
and it's quite scary when you see it. Mm. Um, we typically teach not to examine the child because yeah. the risk there is actually through agitating the child, you risk causing a bit of airway collapse, essentially, isn't it? You know, spasm. Spasm in So you want to get somebody from anaesthetic, somebody from ENT down. You're probably going to intubate this child in theatre or or somewhere, you know, a high dependency unit, possibly a recess type type environment. Um, And you're going to be giving them sort of antibiotics, steroids, supportive management like that. The most common group actually we've seen it in is young adults. Again, it's, it's it's that age group that missed the NMR. And okay. other vaccines around that that time when the, when Wakefield study came out. So you need to suspect in twenty five to thirty year olds that mm. sort of age group at mm. the moment, uh, and also in some older adults, as in the elderly population as well, who also missed the vaccine. Those are the, the most common groups you see it in now. Yeah, I think it's really important as well, isn't it? Because you, you read it in the text in the textbooks, and epiglottitis is primarily a paediatric disease. Yes, uh, yeah. but but actually you can see it in adults, and and as you say, these um these these groups that are coming. Coming in now, um, be suspicious of it in adulthood. And so, it's the final sort of scary condition around urtes that we should talk about is a retropharyngeal abscess. They're very rare. I've only seen one in my in my lifetime. Again, it, it's difficult because they present with the same sort of features as as everything else. So, the mm. fever, the sore throat. Here, you might often get a bit of neck stiffness. Mm. That's not due to any meningeal irritation. That's due to due to swelling in the, in the retropharyngeal area, um, and you often have a bit of stridor as well. I think something that I've I've certainly noticed because um, I've seen it. I think maybe once was actually I, I remember when I um, saw um, the first patient I saw with this, and they were coming with all the classic signs, mm. but the throat looked fine. Yes, yeah. and and that's really important. So if they're coming, they have a really sore throat, difficulty swallowing, etc. And I looked inside the mouth; tonsils are okay. Mm. You know, there's a little bit, little bit of redness. I'm thinking this is about out of proportion for a standard pharyngitis. Yeah, um, and actually, it's because it's lower. You know, you're in that kind of retropharyngeal area. Mm. Um, difficult to detect, clinic. Yeah, but yeah. As you say, patients often look more unwell than the findings. Yes, yeah. the findings you can elicit. Yeah. Suggest. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, that's not to say that you, you can't present with prevalent tonsils, etc., and no. have a retropharyngeal. But yeah, the, this particular episode it was, was interesting because it was happening and, and actually the inspection wasn't, um, wasn't particularly uh, interesting for me. Um, so something to consider and just keep your suspicions up for, mm. particularly if you start to get things like voice changes and things like that. Uh, management here, again, it's, it's that key involvement of ENT anesthetics mm. to help with the, with the stridor. Mm. Um, often, IV antibiotics and, and sort of sepsis, uh, sepsis six and things like that are mm. quite important. They can be drained. Um, the, the abscesses can be drained again in, in ENT theatre, uh, but often these patients are, are quite unwell. Mortality is quite high from retropharyngeal abscesses. Mm. Um, so something just to have on your differential radar when you're seeing patients. Right. Well, that's all I think we really wanted to talk about. So just to sum up a few key points. Um, I think the main point was that we need to prescribe antibiotics pretty yeah, much for everyone. That was the base of the main yeah. point. Everyone gets antibiotics. Yeah. Oh, no, it's the opposite. Oh, hang on, wait. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so the majority of ERTs are viral. They're self-limiting. As long as you safety net well, most of mm-hmm. these patients can be managed, certainly as an outpatient and certainly without antibiotics. It's important to be aware of group A, beta hemolytic strep. Um, that's the main sort of complication that we get worried about because of all the potential complications from that. So the presenting features generally depend on the area infected. Investigation-wise, we don't tend to do a lot. The majority of these cases are self-limiting and don't require much further investigation. There are scoring systems available. Fever pain, which Joe talked about, can be used to help 
in your decision-making process about whether to prescribe these patients antibiotics or not. Mm -hmm. And if you are prescribing them, we're going to be looking at something like PEN-V or clarithromycin if if allergic. Mm. Joe, witty sign-off. Are you ready? (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I was just thinking about this. I knew you were going to try and put my feet to the fire. So, um, I think it's just important that you guys don't get too snotty about some of the facts that we've given you. That's quite good. I like it. (laughs) Okay, well, um, thanks very much for um, listening to our rants on this topic, um, and hopefully uh, we'll, we'll be back with another podcast soon. I think uh, we're, we're a little bit delayed on getting one of our social prescribing podcasts out, but hopefully that'll be um, in the in the um, ether in the ether in the next couple of weeks, probably. So we'll probably have a few coming out. This has actually been recorded live in between Oski, so we've been <laughs> running in and out, in and out, yeah. uh, doing this. As is our commitment to. Uh, to this podcast or a lack of commitment yeah 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 yeah. one of the one of the two uh thanks for listening again guys and again uh, any feedback anything like that then um we're we're happy to receive it and um and we'll see you next time